Isaiah chapter 53. Having concluded our expositional study in the epistle of 1 Peter last week, and with Christmas Eve Sunday being next week, I thought it would be appropriate to fix our full attention on the person and work of Jesus Christ. I mean, that makes sense, right? We say that Jesus is the reason for the season. We say that Christmas is all about Jesus, all about Christ. In most churches, December marks that time where we sing about the advent of Christ. So what better theme to meditate upon during the season of Christmas than Christ? And I can think of no greater chapter in our Bible that contains a more thorough, more beautiful summary of Christ than Isaiah's prophecy given to us in Isaiah chapter 53. In Isaiah 53, we find an explosion of gospel truths. In these 12 verses, we have a concise commentary, really, of the Christian faith. In this chapter, the prophet Isaiah gives us the distinguishing doctrines concerning who Christ is, why Christ has come to earth, and what Christ accomplished in His coming to earth through His death, burial, and resurrection. Though this prophecy was written roughly 700 years prior to Christ's birth, we find that what is said of the promised Messiah described for us as the suffering Savior, the suffering servant, this finds its flawless fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. So what I want to do this morning, what I want to do next Lord's Day morning and then next Lord's Day evening is walk us through this chapter highlighting the three particular features of Christ, namely His person, His purpose, and then His prized possession, his person, his purpose, and then his prized possession. So let me read the whole of the chapter before we look exclusively exclusively to what is written in verses 1 through 3. Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 1. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, And as a root of a dry ground, he hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. 
And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief, when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. In our first main point, I want us to take careful notice of what Isaiah says regarding who the prophesied Messiah is. And the first immediate truth we meet with regarding who he is, is his divinity. Isaiah says, who hath believed our report and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Who is this suffering servant referred to throughout the chapter? Well, verse 1 tells us that he is the mighty revelation of God. Isaiah's mentioning of the arm of the Lord being revealed to others speaks of the strength, power, and might of the Messiah who would come. In fact, the figurative language of God having Strong arms and strong hands is a common linguistical way of emphasizing the fact that God is the one who is sovereign over all. This was the language that the Jewish people were familiar with. God reminded God's people over and over and over in the law of Moses that they were released out of their bondage from Egypt under Pharaoh, not by their own might or wisdom, but by the strength of the hand of the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 10, Isaiah says, Behold, the Lord God will come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. Isaiah 59, verse 1, we read that the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save. In the same chapter, chapter 59, verse 16, we read that it is His arm that brought salvation unto His people. Psalm 89, verse 13, Thou hast a mighty arm, strong is thy hand, and high is thy right hand. Psalm 98, verse 1, O sing unto the Lord a new song, for He hath done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm hath gotten Him the victory. So in Isaiah's proclamation regarding the arm of the Lord being revealed, we find that Messiah will be one who is all-powerful. And this truth, that Isaiah is bringing before our attention is consistent with all we know Christ to be. 
Jesus Christ is not a God among other gods. No, we know that Scripture declares that Jesus Christ is the only living true God. Jesus Christ is not merely God's Son. No, Jesus Christ is the second person of the Godhead. Just as the arm is not separate from the body, so Christ is not separate from the Father and the Spirit. Christ is the visible, powerful arm of the Lord. You see, Christ's gospel is described to us in Romans chapter 1 as the power of God unto salvation. And listen to what Isaiah has already proclaimed in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. As I read it to you, I want you to think about the power of the one who is being prophesied about. These are texts that we often bring out to our attention during the Christmas season. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. Isaiah says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God. The everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, of the increase of His government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon His kingdom to order it and to establish it with justice and judgment from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So do you see who is mentioned here at the outset of Isaiah chapter 53? who is mentioned here in Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 3, and specifically verse 1, is Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Christ is the one who has all power, all authority in heaven and in earth. Who is the promised seed mentioned in Genesis 3.15? Who is the prophet that is greater than Moses? Who is the Messiah that is repeatedly spoken of throughout the writings of the prophets? It is Jesus Christ, the great I am, who is Emmanuel, God with us. Who is this Messiah? Verse 1 declares that the Messiah is God. And as God, He's all-powerful. He is the powerful, revealed arm of the Lord. And in verses 2 and 3 declares that Messiah will be a man. Look at our text again. Isaiah says, Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see Him, there is no beauty that we should desire Him. He is despised and rejected of men, which means that He will dwell among men. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from Him. He was despised, and we esteemed Him not. Did you catch all of the references about the arm of the Lord being revealed as a man? So who is Messiah? 
Who is the suffering servant that is promised to come? Well, Isaiah says that he is God, yes, but he is also the God-man. He is the eternal word become flesh. He is the perfect, sinless Savior of the world. Trace it from Genesis 3.15 onward. The first promise of Christ, spoken by the lips of God to Adam, specifically mentions one being born who will crush the works of Satan. This is a promise of Christ's incarnation. And as you know, here in the book of Isaiah, specifically Isaiah 7.14, God, through the prophet Isaiah, makes mention of the promise of Genesis 3.15, that is specifically referred to by the Lord Himself in Matthew chapter 1. Every truth connects. What's the promise? Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore, the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is... God with us. Nearly 700 years before Christ came, the prophet Isaiah declared that God would come as a man to fulfill what God had said to Adam when Adam fell. A Savior is coming. So who is this man being referred to in verses 2 through 3? It's Jesus The one who Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. So the first truth staring us in the face in Isaiah 53 is the clear and crucial truth that the Messiah is going to be the God-man. He is 100% God. He's divine. Yet at the same time, He's 100% man. Now, why did this need to be? We're going to look at it next week, but real quick. This needed to be because spirit cannot be crucified to a cross. God is a spirit, yet without the shedding of blood, there could be no remission of sins. So God needed to become a man to make an atonement for the sins of God's people. Who is this Messiah mentioned in Isaiah 53? He's God. He's the mighty arm of the Lord, but he's man. He's the God-man. Now, in our second main point, I want you to notice what is said regarding what kind of man Messiah would be like. Isaiah tells us first that he would be a man who appeared weak and insignificant. Verse 2, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, which means that he will grow up without notice. To the eyes of men, He will appear to be a worthless twig rather than a mighty pine, cypress, or olive tree. 
The phrase tender plant also refers to the Messiah living in obscurity of which little notice would be given. But wait, we're not done. Isaiah declares, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. So Messiah is going to be someone who will come into the world from a barren place. Well, is this not true of what we know of Christ? Jesus was born of a poor virgin in Bethlehem. At his birth, there was no royal entrance. There was no ticker tape parade. There was no rolling out of a red carpet. There was no grand celebration, no live stream coverage. In fact, Jesus was born in a stable because there was no room for him in the end. And for 30 years, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, lived in obscurity. Keep in mind that he was a Galilean. In respect to the spiritual, political, and standard living matters of that day, Galilee was indeed dry ground compared to the grand and glorious cities of Jerusalem, Alexandria, and Rome. So who is the prophet being described by Isaiah in Isaiah 53? This prophet is the eternal king, Jesus of Nazareth who made his triumphant entry into Jerusalem before his crucifixion, riding on a donkey? Isaiah tells us that Messiah would be a man who appears weak and insignificant. And then Isaiah also tells us that Messiah would be a man who would be void of physical beauty. Now, this is not to say that Jesus was ugly, but this is to say that there would be nothing in his physical appearance that would attract others to him. In the second half of verse 2, Isaiah says, He, Messiah, hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him with our visible eyes, there's no beauty that would cause us to desire Him. And from what we know of our Savior in the Gospel accounts, we find this very proclamation to be factual. From His birth to His death, there was no visible sign that Jesus was indeed the eternal King. There was no observable indication that He was the Prince and the Prince of Peace. There was no angelic glow about Jesus' countenance. There was no riches that he flaunted. There was no royal robe that he wore. No Hollywood makeup team, no entourage or bodyguards. He appeared as a common man. In fact, those in his own hometown of Nazareth took offense at him and would not accept his teaching because he was merely, quote, the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, and Judah. Who is this Messiah that God is speaking about through Isaiah? First, we find something of who he is. God, this Messiah, is God. And and this Messiah is man. He is the God-man. And then second, we find what kind of man he will be like. 
He would be a man who would appear weak and insignificant, and then he would be a man void of physical beauty. And then third, we find what he will encounter when he comes. Verse 3 tells us that in the course of his life, he will encounter derision and rejection. Derision and rejection. If there is one truth that summarizes Jesus' life, surely it's this truth. If you'll read Matthew chapter 2, you will find that Jesus was despised and rejected as soon as he entered the world. Right? Brother Kinnear read it last Sunday morning. At the announcement of his birth, Herod wanted him dead. He was a threat to King Herod and his rule. As Jesus grew, we read that members of his own physical family who saw with their own eyes how perfect he was did not believe that he was the Christ. We read in John's Gospel that Christ came to his own, the Jews, and the Jews believed him not. Light shined in the darkness and the darkness comprehended it not. The people of Israel saw miracle after miracle being performed, and yet they said, he has a demon. Yet they said, he's guilty of blasphemy and worthy to be crucified. And even as Jesus was being crucified, many walked by that cross, shaking their heads, mocking him and rebuking him and gambling for his clothes. In every way we can imagine, Jesus was despised and rejected by men. His claim to be God was despised and rejected. His teachings were despised and rejected. His kindnesses to others were despised and rejected. His offer of salvation was despised and rejected. What would this Messiah encounter when he came to earth? Isaiah says, he would encounter derision and rejection. And then the text tells us that he would encounter sorrow and grief. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Now applying this to what we know of Jesus Christ, do we not find this to be the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy? Throughout the gospel accounts we read, that Jesus went around doing good and was unappreciated and unwelcomed. We read that Jesus was grieved that the multitudes were as sheep without a shepherd. He was grieved at the fact that most within Israel were content believing the opinions of the rabbis and the traditions of the Pharisees over the truths of God's word. Jesus was grieved by the blatant deception of the religious leaders who were as blind guides leading blind people away from God. Jesus was grieved by the fact that many, many, Matthew chapter 7, professed to know God with their lips, but their hearts were far from Him. I mean, here was God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, the perfect teacher, one who preached with authority, and the multitudes were more interested in getting a free meal than submitting to his teaching. When he handed out fish and bread, they were happy with him. 
But when he started preaching on doctrine and calling out their sins, calling on them to commit their lives to his authority, they became offended at his doctrine and left. Do you think Jesus knows what it is to know sorrow? His own disciples constantly questioned him, doubted him, resisted him, and turned away from him. As Jesus looked around the nation of Israel, the effects of sin, no doubt, troubled him. Because of sin, parents were losing their children to death. Children were losing their parents. Deadly illnesses were destroying communities. And then the greatest sorrow, the greatest grief that Jesus experienced was when Jesus bore the full wrath of God for the price of sin in the behalf of his people. On the cross, Jesus became sin for us who knew no sin. On the cross, Jesus, listen, Jesus experienced hell in the place of those who would believe on him. And even still, Isaiah says, we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Because there was nothing outwardly beautiful about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Because He died such a cruel death, appearing to us to be no God at all. In our sin, in our unbelief, we did exactly what Isaiah said we would do. We hid, as it were, our faces from Him. We did not esteem Him as the promised Messiah. We did not submit our hearts to Him as Lord. In our sin, listen, before the Spirit illuminated our understanding of who Christ was, we were satisfied living how we wanted to live. Oh, maybe we had heard about Jesus dying on the cross, but that didn't take weight on our hearts. What? A man dying as a common criminal? So what? That's a fairy tale. This was us before we came to Christ. We were careless about doing His will. We were content embracing the sinful pleasures of this life. And by the way, this is how our world still views Jesus. They say Jesus is a fairy tale. Jesus is a man-made tradition. Christianity is a legend. It's a man-made idea that lures people into religion because religion needs money. The world thinks God becoming a man to die for sin is the most outrageous, nonsensical belief in the world. You might as well believe in the purple people eater. Seriously, the world thinks that it is just as sensible to believe in Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny and the Tooth Fairy and evolution as it is Jesus Christ. That's how we saw him before God revealed the truth about his person. So what will Jesus meet with when he comes? And what is he still meeting with today? The text tells us rejection and unbelief. And this is why Isaiah says in his very first statement, who hath believed our report? Out of the millions 
who will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the promised Messiah, who is the creator and savior of the world. Who will believe the truths of the gospel? Who will believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to the Father? Who will believe that man is inherently sinful and needs to be saved? And this Jesus, the God-man, is the only mediator between God and man. He answers his own question. Isaiah answered by saying, very few. Most will reject it. Because Jesus seems to be weak, unimportant, insignificant, unattractive. Seems to be a common man. When actually he's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and end, he which was and is and is to come, the Almighty. So having set these biblical truths before us, let me draw to conclusion by providing you with several points of application Having examined Isaiah's doctrinal discourse about the person of Christ, the question I want to conclude with is, what does this mean for us? What can we learn from it? So Messiah is God and Messiah is man. So Messiah would be rejected by others at His coming. So Messiah would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. What can we take and learn from this? Well, truth number one, we learn first that God's thoughts are not our thoughts. Neither are His ways our ways, for Isaiah tells us that God's ways are higher than our ways. So don't judge truth by how you think things should be. Yes? Because if you did, you would be expecting like the Jews did, to see a king who would be beautiful and attractive and conquering the Roman kingdom. They missed him. Why? They didn't believe scripture. They were expecting a physically mighty savior who would be like David setting up his throne on earth. But they forgot. God's ways are not as man's ways. God's ways are higher than our ways. If only they would have held the first few verses of Isaiah 53 up to the person of Christ, they would have seen that this is truly Messiah indeed. First lesson we learn from Isaiah 53 is that God's thoughts are not our thoughts. Neither are His ways our ways, but God's thoughts and God's ways are higher than ours. We learn second that God is a trustworthy, promise-keeping God. God's promises are yea and amen to the glory of God. God is not a man that He should lie. This prophecy was spoken hundreds of years before Christ was born. And God in His grace, God in His power, God in His faithfulness sent forth His Son into this world in the fullness of time, just as He said He would. You see, His promises from the garden throughout history by the prophets did not fall away. And not only did God send His Son as He said He would, but all the characteristics, all the characteristics of who Messiah would be correlate perfect with who Jesus was. Think about that for a moment. 
Such truths can be confirmed in the New Testament scriptures. Did man bring that to pass or did God? Oh, but the Bible was written by men. Christianity is just a tradition of church councils. Give me a break. You think men and church councils can put this together? So what can we learn from Isaiah 53? We can learn, listen, God can be trusted. We can learn that Scripture is inspired truth. Scripture is truth preserved by God just as it says. We can go to the Word of God believing that it truly is our final source for faith and a practice. God's word is true because God is a trustworthy, promise-keeping God. And then we learn third that Jesus Christ is a humble, compassionate, sympathetic Savior. You see, He is not some distant God who does not know us. He is not some foreign deity who cannot relate to us. On the contrary, we read that we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with griefs. Are you full of sorrows this morning? Are you acquainted with grief, heartache, frustration? Jesus knows what it is to be weak. Jesus knows what it is to be forsaken. Jesus knows what it is to be persecuted. Jesus knows what it is to be rejected. And the believer of all people ought to rejoice in this truth. And this is why we can apply Philippians chapter 3, Oh, that we might know Him. And not just know Him mentally, but know Him experientially. And we can grow in our identification with Christ. We can grow to become Christ, more Christ-like in our growing in these sorrows that He shares. And then now, in the light of these truths, let me give you two pastoral reminders that are derived from Isaiah chapter 53. Reminder number one, Do not be surprised by the extensive common rejection of Christ. Do not be surprised by the extensive common rejection of Christ. Sometimes we are. Sometimes we get all out of sorts wondering why people are more interested in sports and movies and television and music and jobs and politics more than Jesus. Right? How is it that people can stand outside in the cold on Thanksgiving night so that they can get $100 off their television screen on Black Friday, but they can't take five minutes to read their Bible? Why is it that thousands and tens and thousands and really hundreds of thousands this day, Sunday, will line up outside of a coliseum and they will go through great lengths to get ready to put their apparel on and get there early to worship a football, but they won't ever go to church. If Isaiah 53 teaches us one thing, it teaches us that Christ's person and Christ's message 
will largely be rejected by this world. Oh, make no mistake, people will flock to the Jesus that remains in the manger. Uh, People will appreciate that Jesus that lets them love the world and love Him at the same time. Uh, They will embrace the Jesus who accepts any ideology, but they will hate and despise the true Jesus of the Bible. Sinners will hate Christ and remain blind to the claims of the true Messiah until God by His Spirit illuminates truths regarding who He is. So don't be surprised by the extensive rejection of Christ. Don't be surprised how many people come into Calvary and how many people go out. Don't be surprised at how many people will reject your faith. I've given you the pastoral admonition to try to hand out a gospel tract this week. Invite somebody to Christmas. Don't be surprised if we all strive to hand out a gospel invitation and nobody comes. You say, Pastor, that's a lack of faith. Well, I'll let you determine if that is or not. I'm just saying more and more people are less interested even to coming to church at Christmas. They're busy. They've got things to do. They want to sleep in. Their God is their belly. Men love darkness rather than the light. And then my second pastoral reminder for you is this. It's a very important one. Do not, do not, do not judge the worthiness of Christ's people Christ's church and Christ's work by externals. Do not judge the profession of one's faith by their outward Christian activity. Do not judge the sincerity of one's profession by their dressing up in a suit on Sunday morning. Do not judge the success of a church, a pastor, or a ministry by its appearance, its size, its busyness, its approval of the world, or its visible attractiveness. Why? Because Isaiah 53 tells us that such outward things are not, they are not the unquestionable indication of it being blessed of God. Yet sadly, most professing believers genuinely think that Bigger is better. Beauty and talent is obviously spiritual and flashy and fun equals being full of the Spirit. The motto today is we want Jesus with the rock bands. We want Jesus with the flashing lights. We want Jesus with the motorcycle clubs, baseball teams, concerts, activities, meals, and entertainment. Isaiah 53 shatters that into a million pieces. If Jesus did not make himself attractive to the carnal men of the world, we have absolutely no business to try to make Jesus and the gospel attractive to others by watering down the truth and focusing on man's felt needs. The only thing, the only thing that can make Jesus attractive to others is the Holy Spirit. 
So the gimmicks need to stop. The cheap presentations of the gospel need to die. The way we turn our church services into a carnival needs to be repented of. And the way we, we view things needs to be adjusted. I know some of you think Calvary needs to spice things up because we seem weak. We need more bells and whistles to get people to come in. Well, I challenge you to read Isaiah 53, read it slowly, and think about it in the consideration of the modern church growth techniques. We must never judge the worthiness of Christ's people, Christ's church, and Christ's work by externals, but by their humble, sincere obedience to God's will. Do not despise the day of small things. God's greatest work is often done in obscurity and without fanfare. Trace it out in the birth of Christ. Now apply it to church life. And then my final question for you this morning is, who is Jesus Christ to you? Who do you say that Jesus is? And I want everybody to think about this question, even the children. Who is Jesus to you? Is he just a Sunday morning tradition? Is he a crutch you lean on during hard times? Is he a connection for you to meet moral friends? Is he a good luck fortune that helps you get what you want? Is he simply your parents' God or a God among other gods? Or is he your God? Is he your Savior, your life, your salvation? This is the question of all questions that needs to be answered by the truths of Isaiah 53. And how you will answer this question will determine whether or not you spend forever in heaven or hell. You say, Pastor, you're not allowed to say hell around Christmas. No, I think more pastors should talk about hell around Christmas. We're talking about eternity. And listen, if the Jews rejected him when they saw him face to face, it's possible for you to reject him. Now, I'm pleading with you. This Messiah that we have looked at from Isaiah 53 is set before you Sunday by Sunday. And still some of you leave thinking all that is well with your soul. You treat my preaching as a TED Talk, a nice idea. You live in la-la land assuming that all is well with your soul when many can see that it appears that it is not. So my question is, are you among those who are despising and rejecting Christ? Oh, may it not be. Maybe you're here this morning, you say, Pastor, I need more proof. What other proof do you need? God has set before your eyes evidence after evidence in Isaiah 53 that God's word is true and Jesus is the true Christ. And I'm here to tell you, if you won't believe this, you won't believe anything that is presented to you. Truth after truth after truth that is perfectly correlated with Christ. And yet you have the audacity like the Jews to say we still need a sign. A sign has been delivered in Jesus Christ. 
So if Isaiah 53 gives us anything to put into action, surely it's the pressing need to repent and believe on the one who has come to provide us salvation. Christ is the one, the only one, who can save. He shall come forth from Mary to save His people from their sins. But the only way salvation can be applied to your heart is by believing, repenting, believing the gospel, believing on Christ, calling upon His name, knowing that He came for you. He didn't just come for the world. He came for you. And so delight in that. Look at all these prophecies. Came to pass through the sovereignty of God and His faithfulness for you. Is that not something we can rejoice in this Christmas season? This is a gift given for you. Christ endured sorrow for you. He was rejected of men for what? For you. Praise be to God for His unspeakable gift. 